All right, you can be seated. Turn to Ruth chapter 3 in your Bibles, smartphone, tablet, Ruth chapter 3. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can bring one. There's a Bible in front of you. You can get that out. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for that Bible to be taken home by you. Put your name in it. It'd be our gift to you. As you're turning to Ruth chapter 3, as we get ready to do a Bible study this morning, I need your help for a moment. I need you to fill in the blank, okay, if you're so willing. There's a song. I need you to fill in a lyric uh, for me real quick. Um, it kind of goes like this. What the world needs now is sweet. Oh, very good. Okay, here's another one. Don't need money. Don't need don't need no credit card to ride this train. Come on, guys. You know the song. I don't act like you don't know. That's the power of. Yeah, that's right. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. That's pretty good this morning. It's, it's still early, all right? Now, a lot of us here in this room, maybe all of us, in fact, have fallen in love at some point in our life. Probably most of all, it would probably include all of us here. And maybe you fall in love with someone you, you know. You fall in uh, love with someone maybe you don't know. Maybe somebody in a movie, someone in a TV show. Maybe, maybe if you're from the deep, deep south, maybe you've fallen in some, one of your relatives. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I know. I'm making friends this morning. I know. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was just kidding, okay? But on a serious note, on a serious note, I learned this week there are over 1,500 organizations, 1,500 organizations in existence today to help you and I fall in love and meet somebody. It is easier today to fall in love than maybe it's ever been in the existence of the world. But here's the question. What about to remain in love? You see, here's the deal. It's, 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 it's easier than ever to fall in love. But what about a persisting love? by definition, one that is able to remain through the good and the bad and everything else. I, I think this is something that we struggle with, but the thumbprint of God would, would have us long for a remaining love, would have us long for a persisting love. And the reason why it's been so difficult for us are, are phrases like this, well, you're just a chip off the old block. Well, you're just like your mom. And it makes you think, oh my goodness, I, I didn't see a persisting love growing up. I didn't see maybe a love that remained. Is this possible for me? Or maybe you're in the middle of a relationship and you would not say right now that it's a remaining, a persisting kind of love. Or maybe you just got out of a relationship, friend, uh, that it was not a, a persisting and remaining love. And so we, we come to this kind of this this, this, this why in the road, and we wonder, how do we do this? What does this look like? What are the building blocks of a persisting, remaining love? Because we all can fall in it, but can we remain in it? And that's where we come to Ruth chapter 3. Before there was Romeo and Juliet, before there was Princess Buttercup and the farmhand Wesley in that great movie, there was Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz, two single people. Today in our country, there's more single people than there are married people. First time ever in our country, okay? And so there's two single people. They're, we're going to find them in, in, in a romantic situation. And then not to tell you the ending, but what they would see is an unbelievable relationship develop and a long-lasting, persisting, remaining love. 21st century application that happened in 1000 B.C. So, would you look at Ruth chapter 3 with me? 
as we look at it together. Now, before we dive into verse 1, we see chapter 3 divided into three scenes. Okay, the first scene is verse 1 through 5. The second scene is uh, verse 6 all the way through 13. And the third scene is verses 14 through 18. Three basic scenes. You see, three di- if you were watching a play, there would be three different locations in this chapter, and we'll move, move rapidly through them. So let's look at the first scene, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, stop right there for a second. Naomi has lost her husband, her two sons. She was in a different country uh, when she lost them, but she returns home, and her daughter-in-law follows her. Ruth, uh, Naomi says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let uh, him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Okay, it's been six to seven weeks since Ruth has met Boaz. Boaz has met Ruth. There's been maybe a few walks. Maybe there's been a few lunches along the way, but nothing more. It's hard to get a man and a woman together at times. I was uh, doing some research this week, and I ran across this news article about this very thing, and I just want to put it up on the screen here real quick, and I want to read it to you. This is what the article said. Single blonde female seeks male companionship. Ethnicity unimportant. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, hunting, camping, fishing trips, cozy winter nights lying by the fire, candlelight dinner will have me eating out of your hand. Rub me the right way and watch me respond. Now I have your attention. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work, wearing only what nature gave me. Kiss me and I'm yours. Call 404-875-6420 and ask for Daisy. Over 15,000 men called and found themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society about an eight-week-old blonde retriever. (laughs) And Naomi knows this, right? And so what she does is that she... She goes on the offense. She seeks Ruth to move forward, to make a move. Okay, that's what's happening. And so she says, I want you to take off those old garments. Those are your grave clothes garments. Those are the ones that you're wearing in mourning of your dead husband. It's time to put the past in the past to move forward. I want you to get a pedicure. I want you to get a manicure. I want you to take a bath. Now, in our country today, uh, we use 450 billion gallons of water every single day, enough to, to, to cover the New York City almost 90 feet deep. But in this culture, in 1000 BC, baths were rare. It was only in anticipation of a great ceremony. Naomi is helping Ruth get ready for hopefully her future wedding. And then in Scripture right here, we see that she mentions the threshing floor. What she means by this is she wants Ruth to get all dressed up, all decked out, all ready to go. I want she goes down to the threshing floor where basically it was a flat stone surface where they would take the bundles of grain that they had captured from the fields. They would throw them down and they would grind them and then they would grind them down and then they would take what was left 
and they would throw them up in the air and the chaff would be caught by the wind. It would blow away and only the kernels of grain were left. And this is what they would pile up. We already know this to be true, that they hadn't had a harvest in a few years. There had been a famine. So this was an unbelievable harvest. Do you think they were in a good mood? Do you think that they were excited about payday? You better believe it. So Ruth is saying, hey, look, I want you to go down. I want you to go to the threshing floor, but I don't want you to be seen by him. I want you to wait until they're all asleep, until everyone is sound asleep, the fire has died down. And then in verse four, she says, I want you to under uncover his feet and lie down. Now, what does this mean? <laughs> Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit more later on. But what it does not mean is this has any kind of sexual euphemisms here. Some people have said, well, this is, has some kind of sexual undertones. No, it does not. It simply means to literally uncover his feet. So Ruth, so Ruth is told by Naomi, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get as good looking as you can. I want you to wait till the middle of the night until he has eaten. He has had his fair share of drink. He's not drunk but he's definitely had a few beverages probably in that culture in that time, okay? And he's had a good time with his friends. He's in a great mood. He settles down by a grain pile because he's watching and protecting his commodity, his business. And then when he's asleep in his sleeping bag, I want you to cozy up right next to him. And then when he awakes, I want you to do whatever he says. Now, fellas, dads, would you ever tell your daughter this? Hey, honey, this is, I can't even imagine. I go up to my daughter, hey, honey, I want you to wait until he is out in the woods camping with his buddies. And he's already eaten. He's full of food. He's at the time of his life and he's in his tent. And then I want you to unzip his tent without him knowing about it. I want you to snuggle up right next to him. And then when he rolls over and discovers you're there, do whatever he says. There is no way I'm saying that <laughs> to my daughter. Any man can say amen to that right now. That's right. There's some scholars who would say that Naomi has put all of her, her trust in the sovereignty of God. And that all of this is kosher. But their culture in that, in that day never indicated this was ever kosher. But then another set of commentators would say, well, this is not good advice by Naomi. This is not what should happen. She could have waited to the middle of the day for something like this to take place. And what I would say is I would agree with both. I think there is the sovereignty of God, but also there is a human responsibility. And also I think that this probably wasn't the greatest piece of advice by Naomi. All right, there's a little bit of both. But what I love about this is this, that in Scripture, okay, in Scripture, we see God's redemptive plan unthwarted, regardless of bad advice or good advice. You see, Boaz and Ruth meet under circumstances that isn't exactly the best the perfect ideal circumstances. But what you see happen is God's redemptive plan. And I don't want to get ahead too far, but you see them enjoy an incredible marriage down the road. And here's why I share that with you. The Bible is not a, a collection of ins God-inspired um, um, things that happened because it, everything worked out perfectly. The Bible is full of individuals who failed miserably. 
It's real, it's authentic, and it's raw. And for us to sit and act like that relationships are perfect, that we all just, everyone makes the right decision all the time and gives the right advice is just plain silly. So let's just be real. Let's just be honest. And let's understand that scripture is helping us understand a redemptive story about two individuals that may or may not have started exactly the way they should have in a relationship. I was reminded about this this week as I was kind of thinking through it. I went to a, a local coffee shop and I ran into somebody that I know and we were talking and I thought, you know what, that's, ex that's a great picture because their, their relationship wasn't exactly started off on the right exact way that it should have. But what God specializes in is taking uh, two different broken, messy stories and redeeming them for his glory. That's not to say and to give you license this morning. Be like, oh, look, it worked out for Boaz and Ruth. Time for me to unzip some tents. That's not what I'm saying, okay? What I'm saying is, is that I want to encourage you this morning that if your relationship didn't start out the right way, if you've encountered bumps along the way, God specializes in redemption. Also, for me to say this, that just because you're a grandma, just because you're a grandpa, just because you're older does not mean that your advice is always wise. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. <laughs> Verse six, so she went down. So Ruth hears these words. She's going down to a lower elevation because that's where the threshing floor was and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Verse seven, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. So he's celebrated an incredible harvest, right? It's a bumper crop. He's in an incredible mood and notice the um, Hebrew idiom here has no indication that he is drunk. I just want to be very clear with that. He's a, he is a man of integrity. He's a man of character, as we talked about last week. But he's definitely in a good mood. The Bible says that he is in good spirits. He was in, I mean, why wouldn't you be in a great mood, right? You've just had an unbelievable harvest. He's pretty happy. But he's about to get a lot more happy. And he's, his night's also going to get a lot weirder, okay? Verse is following. Ruth approached quietly. So you can just kind of picture that it's midnight, okay? And everyone's asleep and the campfires died down and they're snoring and she's tiptoeing over to Boaz, right? L literally, this is what's happening. Uncovers his feet and then she just lays down right there. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Yeah, I'd say so. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. It actually, in, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew there, it actually indicates that he could have been shivering. So you can imagine that you're shivering and you just kind of pull a blanket back over your feet. And he's, whoa, there's a, there's a female right there in front of me. He says, who are you? Well, I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You, may not, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. 
lie here until morning. So it's in the middle of the night. He wakes up, his feet are uncovered, and he is startled. You know what this is? This is weird, okay? This is awkward. My children think it's a good idea to come up to us in the middle of the night when they're scared and just think that it's cool to stare at us while we're sleeping. Have you ever had this happen? And you wake up and and you're just like, there's someone right there. That's exactly what's happening here. And Ruth says, look, look at it with me. She says right here, she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That's Bible speak for it's in your legal right to marry me, Boaz. What do you say? It's, It's not a full proposal, but it's a very, very major hint towards a proposal. She's saying, hey, I'm available and I'm interested. What do we do next? And I love this because in this scripture, what we see is a custom, but even more so, the first building block, the first, really the first anchor point of a persisting remaining love. You see, what Ruth was asking was in their custom was for a talith. And a talith was this specific piece of a garment that a groom would place on a bride's um, on their wedding day, to basically say to all that was around them, to say, you know what? I am now covering her. I am now taking care of her. She's now my responsibility. I want to take action. And that's really the first building block of of a remaining persisting love, action. If you have your listening guide, you can write that down. Number, uh, number, it's actually two in your guide, but really it's number one this morning for me. Action. See, here's what I want to say. There's a relationship between divine responsibility and our responsibility. It's a partnership that God works with us. There's something that that I also want you to see here, and here's what I think comes out in the scriptures that Ruth is basically telling um, Boaz something and reminding him of something that happened in chapter 2. What she's trying to point out to Boaz is earlier, okay, Boaz had talked about and said, may the, Lord, uh, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wing you have come to seek refuge. Boaz had said that to Ruth. And Ruth now says, hey, spread your wings over me. She's actually referring back as a derivative of the, actually that word. She's actually referring back to his prayer. She said, do you remember on the threshing floor? A few months ago, when you said these words to me, he goes, yeah, you know what? You can be the answer to your prayer. It's right here. That that this kind of a persisting remaining love requires action. That love is action. That love is a verb. That Christ demonstrated his love, but God demonstrated his love by what? Sending his son. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Don't hold anything back when you have the ability to change a situation for someone else, your wife, your husband, your friend, your loved one, etc. If it's in your power to do it, then do it. And in your listening guide there, I put a little blank. I want to ask you, is there something that you've been putting off that's in your power to do that you need to take action to do? Write it down. Take a moment. Write that down. Don't leave this place without maybe saying, you know what, my my love requires action. 
If we don't have action to our love, we are nothing more, as Paul said, than a a sounding brass and a noisy cymbal. As a follower of Jesus Christ, does your love go beyond your words? So the situation happens and, and she asks this important question and we see this, this, this element of action that would be in their relationship. But then we come to the second building block of a, of a remaining, of a persisting love. And you see his response and it gives us the key. He says, may, the, look at it with me. He says, the Lord bless you, Ruth. The Lord bless you, Ruth. You saw Boaz in chapter two mention God multiple times. You saw Boaz reorient and orient his life around God. And now you, again, he's asked this question and the first thing he talks about is what? God. And it gives us an indication once again of his character. And that is that his life is centered around Christ. The second type building block of a a remaining persisting love is to be Christ-centered. Is your relationship centered upon Christ? Is your dating relationship centered upon Christ? Your, your, your marriage, your engagement, your family, your friends, your, is it centered upon Christ this morning? Proverbs, or I mean Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Are you Christ-centered this morning? You know, today marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's a big day for a Protestant, the Protestant movement. Here's why. Because Martin Luther would see to it, he would nail his 95 theses to the church uh, door there in Germany. And, And those 95 theses basically could be boiled down into five distinctives. They would basically say this, the church and and the country had removed Christ from the center and in place had put rituals and traditions and the distinctives of Christ had been lost. And those things, I just wrote these down in my Bible, and, and these things could be boiled down to these five things, faith alone, by scripture alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, and give God or glory to God alone. You see, you strip away everything else from Ruth and Boaz and what you get is Christ centered relationship. Isn't that exciting that on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation today, we can see this in the life of Ruth and Boaz. It's unbelievable. And then we continue today. And and we're at the end of verse 13, and we're ready to turn the corner into verse 14. And he says, lay here until morning. So what happened between verse 13 and then when morning came? Now, there's no hint of impropriety. There's no hint of anything, but do you think they slept much? I don't think so. I think their, their hearts were beating as fast as possibly they could be. It was like they'd just run a marathon. I don't think they slept much that night, if you were to ask me. But what we see here between verses 13 and 14 is another incredible building block of a persisting remaining love, and that is this, purity. Purity. See, in our culture today, after this proposal in the middle of the night, the next thing that would happen and would be really uh, uh, suggested would be they would just move in together. It made sense, right? Ruth was homeless. Ruth was bankrupt. Hey, move in with me. It makes better sense. It's a te- you know, taxes will be blah, 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 blah. 
But here's what I just want to encourage you this morning on. Your heavenly father loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine or know. And he has a plan for your life. He, he built this thing called love. He built this thing called you. And what he wants you to know is this, that he knows the best thing for you, even when you think you know the best thing for you. And, 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 and here's another thing. When it comes to purity, friends, when it comes to purity, we have to understand that shortcuts only lead to really harder times. That purity paves the way to intimacy in our relationships, in our romance. Now, does, that, does God uh, not able to redeem a situation that, as I said earlier, he can redeem any situation? But, my friends, but this is the best way through purity possible. And I just wrote down here, you know, that statistically, look at these, these, these unbelievable stats that if you live together before being married, the rate of divorce will increase 53 to 100 and something percent. That's just fact. That's not my opinion. That's just fact. Pure, simple statistics. And see, underneath the veil of all of this then are things that most people won't even relate to, but then counselors report that when a couple move in together, actually what happens is there's no more depression and there's less connection because physical is never the foundation of a relationship, but it should go much deeper and it does go much deeper into the soul level satisfaction. So let me just speak to you, the singles in the room here this morning as an encouragement from me to you, okay? Uh, Boaz treated Ruth like a daughter of God. He even said daughter, right? Let me just speak to you. And I, this is, this is, I just love this observation from one author that I was looking at this morning in regard to this chapter. He said this. He said, uh, Boaz treated Ruth as a daughter. Are you treating her like a daughter of God? Single ladies this morning. Are you treating him like a son of God? Would you do this? Would you walk in purity this morning? If you're young or you're old alike, would you walk in purity? It's harder, I know, but my friends, it paves the way to so much greater things. Married people here today, I just want to encourage you. I want you to think of legacy Think of legacy for a second with me. So many times uh, we're caught in the moment of emotion. We're caught in the moment of, well, you know what? She doesn't satisfy me or he doesn't do this for me or he ignores me or whatever the case is. I want you to think legacy like God thinks. See, God sees legacy generation after generation after generation. Do you see the same thing? I want you to think long-term, not short-term. Don't think the short-term play. Think the long-term play for your relationship and your marriage, purity. It's a building block of a persisting love. Okay, let's continue this morning. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's basically saying, look, you have a spotless reputation. You're a Proverbs 31 woman. I want to keep that reputation. Nothing happened. But because prostitutes were known to go to the threshing floor at that time to celebrate with guys that had a done a cash at the time, he said, look, I don't want this to look like something that, that really nothing happened. I don't want this to, 
to, to look like something that really shouldn't. So, hey, I don't want to ruin your reputation. It only takes a moment to ruin a reputation when you build a lifetime to get there. So I want you to do and be smart about this. Verse 15, he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. He gives her enough grain to weigh around 80 pounds. That's a couple of months salary. That's a lot of grain. That's a lot of food. That is a lot. He, Ruth came empty-handed and she left not only with a promise, but with food as well. It was a dowry to prove of his intentions to Naomi, but even more so. It teaches us a few last things in a persisting and remaining love. The first one is uh, this, a privileged perspective. What I mean by that is he didn't take her for granted. She didn't take him for granted. That he understood her value and worth. That he was so thankful for what he had in her. And then finally, number five, it was life-giving to the other person. She came in empty-handed and she left full. Are you a life-giving individual? As a believer in Jesus Christ, we are given life through Christ. Are you giving life to others? Winston Churchill famously one time said this, you can make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. Are you life-giving to others? Are you adding value to those around you Today, as a believer in Christ, you should be overflowing with this kind of love. And as we just sang um, just a little bit ago, joy, right? Joy. It reminds me of a, a story that I, I uh, read about this last week. And the story was over a 32-year-old woman, and, and her name was Susan, and, he, and the, the guy's name was Richard. And they found out within 48 hours uh, that she had uh, breast cancer, and she also that it had gone into the, this, the bloodstream, and they thought that she may have brain cancer as well. So they went directly into surgery. She got out of surgery after a, a really, really tough spell of it and came to. Her husband, Richard, is right there in the room. As he looks at her and he's, he's gazing into her eyes, he says, do you need anything? And she says, no good. He goes, okay, I need to go right, I need to go to the restroom. He leaves the hospital room. He goes to the restroom. And when he comes back in, she's holding a mirror and she's bawling. He said, honey, what's the matter? And he knew that this woman had been so strong and courageous over the last 48 hours, even though she thought prospectively that her life could end in just the next few years, as the doctor had said. He had marveled at that, but maybe he thought, you know what? It's just too overwhelming for her. And she's bawling. And he says, sweetheart, Sue's, it's just too much, right? She says, no, that's not it. But she said, I look in the mirror and I'm a shadow of what I used to be. She said, and she started to think about it. That the fact that the morphine that they'd given her to, with all the pain and the surgery, had, there had been an allergic reaction and she'd bloated up like a sausage. And she was unrecognizable in her face and her neck and the rest of her body. Then on top of that, that her 
her beautiful black hair with curls had been matted down. It was greasy and smelly. And then the, the betadine from the surgery was all over her. And while she was asleep, a bunch of friends had come in, you know, all, all with well intentions. And then saw her and she was embarrassed. So the husband, Richard, he leaves the room once again and he, he just gets all of these bottles of water and he comes back in and he, he sits down by the sink and he puts them all out and he lines them up and then he picks her up off the hospital bed and, and with one little finger and carries the IV in her all the way to the sink and he, and he sits down on a chair and he sets her on, on his lap and he begins to bathe her hair in the bottled water and washes her hair. And after he's washed her hair, just like he had seen her hair done at a salon so many times, he picks her back up without one stitch bursting, puts her back in the bed, and then begins to slowly blow dry her hair. He blows dry, blow dries her hair. He combs her hair. It doesn't look perfect, but it looks better than it did. And then he begins to slowly but surely just, just clean off her neck, clean off her shoulders, and wipe her clean. And then with just an unbelievable amount of love, he gets out of her makeup and he begins to apply all the makeup that he had seen her put on every single day for a number of years as a husband. And he gets down to the lipstick and he says, well, we've got, I've got a mauve and a cherry wine. Which one, sweetie? And she says, I'll take the mauve. And he puts the, the mauve on and she begins to cry. And he said, don't cry. You'll mess up my, my makeup job. <laughs> and she says, no, no, no. It's not about that. It's the fact that I had seen my whole life flash before my eyes, but with one life-giving act, you restored normalcy. What we see here is an, a picture of the life-giving act of Christ and how he gave his life ultimately so that we could live, so that we could then be a life-giving have a persisting remaining love in our relationships. And what I want to ask you, friend, today is, do you have that life-giving relationship that God gives us? Do you have that this morning? If you don't have that, I would love to have a conversation with you. I'd love for you to, in the next few minutes, when the time is right for you to get out from your seat, for you to walk down front, just tap me on the shoulder, and I'd love to have a conversation about what it looks like to know the one who gave the ultimate gift to all of us. To restore, not what is normal in our culture, but to restore the normal by what he dreamed of in Genesis chapter 1. To restore and redeem what the enemy has tried to take from us. And the second one I want to ask you today, this morning, is there a, a time and a place in your life today where your relationship with someone else is struggling. Your marriage is on the rocks. You are sensing, and, and there's fear, and there's all kinds of brokenness. And right now, in this very moment, you need to be life-giving, or you need this encouragement today. If that's you today, we're going to have prayer counselors to my left and to my right who would love to pray with you. This is your opportunity. This is my opportunity to respond, to hear, and to see your love remain. Your love persist. Your love look just like Ruth Boaz in Christ.